Welcome to the ministry of Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray this message by Pastor John Roberts is a blessing to you. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. We, we started this back in um, 1 Samuel chapter 18. And let's go back there real quick. There were three covenants that we've looked at that David and Sam or David and Jonathan made. And they are indicative or a type or a shadow of what God has done for us. We looked last week at, at because it was Easter, we looked at what um, Jesus did all the way from the very first um, covenant that he made with the Father in heaven before he ever created the universe. And then as soon as that Adam and Eve fell, he made a covenant with them. He, he killed an animal, gave them the skins. And then in particular, he made the covenant with Abram where, where a, a pre-incarnation theophany, an appearance of God, the second person of Godhead came down and took Abram's place to make that covenant with the Father because Abram could not keep it. I mean, Paul said this in the book of Romans, you know, the, the purpose of the law was to show us that we are sinners. It, 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 it does make, um, let me digress here for a second, the law, particularly the Jewish law, Ten Commandments, although we focus in on the ten, there are 600 and some odd um, commandments in, in the Torah. But the law does make a, a good way to base a society and to give you rules to live by. But from a scriptural perspective, the purpose of the law was twofold. One, it was to give you the, the order and the, and the way to bring sacrifices to get out of the penalty of sin. You could cover your sins temporarily. You had to, the, the high priest had to go into the Holy of Holies every year. Now, it wasn't that, that your sins couldn't get covered without that. Otherwise, no one before the temple was built or before the tabernacle was built could have ever been saved. And no one after the, the temples were destroyed could ever get saved. So it wasn't the, the sacrifices themselves, but it was the, the, the priests, and this was the great failing of the priesthood in, in Israel. The priests were supposed to teach as they did the sacrifice about sin and the penalty of sin. And this innocent animal is taking your place because of your sin. This animal is going to die and it's going to temporarily cover your sins. But there is one coming, the Messiah, who will sacrifice and your sins will be washed away though they be as scarlet they'll be made as white as snow and the priesthood failed we have you know much the same problem today you you read i think it's in jeremiah i forget the chapter now where um god jeremiah was a i would not want jeremiah as my pastor put it that way jeremiah was rough and basically, Jeremiah said, you pastors, I got, a, I got a bone to pick with you because you are not doing what God's called you to do. And because of that, the people are perishing. And he said, but God's going to raise up pastors that will do what a pastor should do. And when they come, then 
God will start to restore. And every time that, that in Israel's history that you had a teaching priest or you had a king or a prophet that could, would call the people back to holiness, suddenly they started prospering again. But you see through all of these, these covenants, they all pointed to Jesus, but they all pointed to blood covenants. And, and David and Jonathan... Their covenant was a type or a, a gives you a partial picture of what God did through Jesus for us. And in, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 18, verse 1, this is the first covenant they cut. It says, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day, speaking of David, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. And if you go on down through, it goes through that Jonathan took off his robe and gave it to David, took off his belt and his sword. And we went through that last week that, you know, it, it represents everything that's mine is now yours. Part of cutting the covenant is we list out assets. You know, if, if there are a lot of reasons that people do that. But for most of us, when you list your assets and your liabilities, you want your assets to be greater than your liabilities. Occasionally, it doesn't work that way. But whatever it is, when you went into covenant with someone, whatever at the end of the covenant, whatever was yours is now mine. And whatever is mine is now yours. Marriage is the greatest example we have of that. When, when you get married, whether you have a joint checking account or not, in God's eyes, your stuff is Mr. and Mrs. You're both on that account. You have, you have come into a blood covenant and everything that is mine belongs to Gina and everything that belongs to Gina is mine. It goes so far as Paul said in the New Testament that even your body is not your own. Now boy, that'll, that'll raise the, the hackles on some feminists today. But it goes both ways. It's not just one way. It's both ways. You can put demands. It is not, it is not abnormal and it is not wrong to put demands on your, on your spouse. Now, let me, since I opened Pandora's box there, putting demands does not mean you put that you are demanding. There is a difference to put a demand on someone and be demanding. I can go to my, my bank, depending on what my, check, what my bank account has in it, I go there, and in fact, I don't even, you don't even have to go there. You just pull out your debit card or you write a check and you put a demand on the money that's in my account. That is putting a demand on the bank. You will pay this, you will pay this person this much out of my account. And they have to honor it. I can also go into the bank and when the teller takes about 30 seconds longer than I think they should, I can start getting a little nasty, start pounding my fist like I'm somebody important and get demanding. And you do that enough and guess what? They'll call the police and they'll haul you off and they'll send you a letter and says, we don't want to do business with you anymore. Leave. Don't come back. Take your money. Go find a new place to do business. So there's a difference between putting a demand and being demanding. 
Being married means I can put demands. Does not mean I can be demanding. Amen? Okay. Second covenant. The first covenant here we just read in, in verse 1 through 4 deals with, with just um, Jonathan and David together. The second covenant that we, we looked at was in chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. And it's verse um, 3. says, David took an oath again. And said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, don't let Jonathan know, know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. The, the, the salient point there is the very first part. David took an oath again. That means he renewed the covenant between he and Jonathan. But if you go on down to verse 13... Well, let's do it, verse 12. Jonathan said to David, The Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father, and sometime tomorrow, or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety, and the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." Jonathan here is actually betraying his, not only his father, but the king. That's dangerous for anyone. Verse 14, And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. Know not when the Lord is cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now Jonathan caused da again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. In that one, in fact, go on down to verse 42. Verse 42 of chapter 20, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, May the Lord be between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Jonathan expanded this covenant now to not only include me and you, but our families. Because Jonathan could see the writing on the wall. My dad has sinned. Samuel has rejected him. And he's not going to be king long. He's probably not going to live long. But when you come into power, David, because I can see the anointing on you, you're going to be the king of this land. I, we're going to look here in a minute. I'm going to be second in command. But if something happens and I die, you watch out after my kids. Because the normal practice was the new king kills the entire family. Everybody. We kill the dad, the mom, the kids, the dogs, the chickens. Everything's gone. Because he didn't want anybody rising up to challenge his leadership. Jonathan is looking after his children. And then the, the, the third covenant I just mentioned in, in 1 Samuel 23, verse 17 and 18. Says, and, and he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, 
and Jonathan went to his own house. Jonathan has now made three covenants with David and said, you're going to protect me, I'm going to protect you. And they did that. At least David did it as much as he could. At the end, and, and this is my personal opinion, I don't have a lot of scripture to back it up, and I wouldn't argue with anybody who disagreed with me, but I personally think because of this scripture, Saul knew that Jonathan was, was going to go with David. So when, when Saul got in that last battle and he went up to, to do the heat of the battle, the prophet had already told him, Saul, you're going to die. This is it. This is the day you die. He took Jonathan with him. And I think he did it because he didn't want Jonathan supporting David after he was dead. He, he was so deprived and so depraved, excuse me, that he would rather see his son dead than see him serve a new king. Well, that's pretty harsh, but I think the scripture implies it if it doesn't out and out say it. But after this is, has, has happened, then um, both Saul and Jonathan are killed, and Mephibosheth's nurse runs off with him, and we went through this. He was, when Mephibosheth, who is Jonathan's son, when he was born, he was named Maribal. I mean, your destiny is to contend with Baal. I, you are being born with the task to take on false gods in our country. And then after he, he, the, the family heard that Jonathan and Saul had both been killed, the nurse grabbed him up, snatched him up, ran out, and in her haste she fell down, probably fell on the kid, broke his feet, broke his ankles. They were never set properly. He was crippled the rest of his life. But they ran off to hide him because they thought David's going to come kill him. And they took him to a, a, a place that literally the, main, the name of it means a dry place. And they told him all his life, David hates you. King's out to get you. You've got to keep a low profile. Don't let anybody know who you are. We're going to call you Mephibosheth now rather than Maribal. And your name now means shame. And you're not going to be a threat to David that way. But in David's mind, he doesn't know Mephibosheth exists. But in David's mind, he's, he grieves for years over the death of Jonathan. This was a friend, a close friend. Now, ladies, I'll be honest with you, sometimes I'm a little jealous of you all because, well, for a lot of reasons. But I, I, and, and, and you may look at me and say, you may think you know us, but you don't know us at all. But, but from a man's perspective, it seems like women have an easier time to make friends and to share and, and, and get intimate with, with another woman. That's not so with men. And particularly in the modern culture, it is extreme. If, if you can say you have one good friend, man, you are, a, you, you are in a privileged position. And if, you have, if you're a man and you have two good friends... That's outstanding. I know all kinds of people. In fact, I, 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 an acquaintance, a guy I used to teach with, their dog ran off last week, and he posted on Facebook that my dog ran off, gave a picture, said, would you guys, if you're out and about, just look for him. You know, bring him back to us if you see him. The next day he posted, and he was, he was you could almost hear him crying. Happy tears, because the dog showed back up. But he said, I looked on Facebook, and this thing was shared, re reposted about 80 times. 
He said, I got people all over the city that are looking for my dog. And he said, I'm just amazed that this many people are doing this, are being my friend. And I'm thinking, oh my God, is this the measure that we measure friendship now? That if I share a need on Facebook that you have, I've become a good friend? If we've lowered the bar of friendship that low, we have no idea what friendship is. Friendship is much deeper than that. And, and Jonathan and David were, were extremely close to the point where David mourned him and mourned him and mourned him. And finally one day he said, look, is there anybody left? This is in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9. It says, is there anyone left of the house of Saul? Man, go look, guys. Do a search. I want to know, is there somebody in, in Saul's lineage left alive? Not so I could kill him. That's the world's way. You know, nits make lice. Kill them early. Get rid of them before they grow up and come, you know. In fact, what was it? The, um, one of the Godfather movies, maybe not that genre, but, oh, I, it wasn't that. It, was, um, it came out of the Appalachian Mountains. My, um, my first daughter's name was Christy. Catherine Marshall wrote a book named Kiss Christy, which is a, an excellent book. But it, it details the, the, the life of early Appalachian settlers. And one of the things that, that early Appalachian settlers, not just early, were famous for was feuds. And one of the ways they did it, and, and in this book, there was an actual happening a father got killed by somebody in an argument, and they took the, the son, who was a pre-teenager, made him go out, dig the grave, lay his father in there, and every shovel full of dirt he threw on his dead father, he had to mention the man's name that killed him to build that hatred into him. And that was their practice. David could have had that attitude. I'm the king. God's called me to be king, I'm, telling, I'm taking down anybody that's going to challenge my, my kingship. Instead, David's looking. Is there anybody out there that I can bless? That is a godly attitude. That's why David was a type of Christ. If, you know, people occasionally will, will tell somebody that, you know, appears to be a good man or a good woman, well, you deserve these blessings you got. If you're smart, you realize, no, I don't. <laughs> I deserve hell, but I got heaven. I deserve poverty, but I've got wealth. I deserve sickness, but I got healing. None of it's because of me, but it's because I have a king who loves me enough to say, yes, your father rebelled, your father sinned, and you inherited all of that junk from him, but I'm going to bless you anyway because I love you. That's what David is wanting to do with Mephibosheth. Now, notice in, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, let's go down to verse 6. David found, found Mephibosheth. It says, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul... Now keep in mind, this is a boy who's been raised his entire life. David hates you. And, and, and keep this in mind. Most of the world believes that God is an angry God. And God is out to get you. I've used the example when, when I was out in my, my 
nasty days, I call them. I always thought that, that God's attitude to, towards me was the attitude of that game um, whack-a-mole, where you had nine holes and you had a big old mallet and that mole's head would pop up and, and it'd just come up for a second and you had to smack it before it went back down. And how quick you were at hitting it, it was how high your score. Well, I got to be pretty good at that after I played it for a while. But that was my attitude towards God. I poked my head up, man, he is going to whack me. Why did I think that? Because most Christians I knew told me God was angry with me and that God was doing all of the evil in my life because I was a dirty sinner. And bless God, we still are doing the same thing. Homosexual gets AIDS, well, that's God's judgment on your sin. No, it's not. No, it is not. God judged that sin in Jesus. That is the enemy trying to steal, kill, and destroy one of God's children. And we need to pray for them to make that power we talked about earlier available to them, whether they accept it or not. We use the phrase, you know, if, if you had been the only person to ever accept Jesus, He still would have died for you. That's a true statement, but it's not reality. If nobody had ever accepted the sacrifice that Jesus did, He still would have gone to the cross. Because that's His nature. He would have provided salvation if every human being that ever lived would have stood up and spit in his eye and said, we don't want you. He would say, that's okay, I still love you and I'm still making it available. Now, unfortunately, every, all of human civilization would have gone to hell if we'd have rejected him in mass. But even as dumb as we are, a lot of us still said, yeah, that's a pretty good deal. <laughs> I got a wealthy man wants to give me his wealth and take my poverty. Yep, yeah. I mean, that's like Bill Gates walking in here and saying, I'm looking to adopt somebody. And there's no requirements, but I'll take over your bank account and I'll, you know, you put me on your bank account, I'll put you on my bank account. Ain't too many people going to say no. Well, with Jesus, you get all of that plus righteousness. Let's go back to verse 6, 2 Samuel 9, 6. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his faith and prostrated himself. Then David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Here is your servant. Now notice what David answers to him in verse 7. Mephibosheth falls on his face. He fully expects this is the day I'm going to die. Now, you know, I was watching um, the movie Gravity. It kind of freaks me out when I watch that thing, but I still caught a little piece of it. And Sandra Bullock was in whatever ship, spaceship she was going to get rescued in. And she was talking to herself, and she said, I'm going to die. And it was, she was talking to her dead daughter, having this conversation. And she said, I know everybody dies sometime, but she said, I'm dying today. That's a realization. When you know that, there is a really good possibility. This is the day I'm going to stand before Jesus. Life is going to leave my body. That'll focus your attention. That's Mephibosheth's attitude right here. 
I've been called to the king's house. The king hates me. He despises me. He wants me dead. He's the king. If he wants me dead, I'm going to be dead. David answers him. Mephibosheth hits his face and says, I am your servant. It's just like if you've ever watched dogs, you know, meet each other. One will always take a servant role to the dominant dog. This is what Mephibosheth is doing. He's down on the ground. I'm not here to threaten you, David. What does David do? Very first thing he says, do not fear. Every time in the Bible, you go through it and you look when an angel comes and presents himself to a, 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 a person. First words out of that angel's mouth almost every time, fear not. Why? Because they're scary creatures. When you get presented with, a, with a, an angel in front of you, it's like, whoa, this can go a lot of ways. And if I'm not real careful, it can go the wrong way. You know, it's kind of like when that policeman walks up to your window. If you're smart, you say, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And you do what they say to do. Fear or do not fear. But then he also gives him the reason he shouldn't fear. Second thing, for I will surely show you kindness. Mephibosheth, get up off your knees, quit being afraid. I'm here to bless you, son. And I know Mephibosheth's brain, it's, this is not computing. This is a man who hates me. Everybody has told me he hates me. He wants me dead. And he's saying he wants to, to, to show me kindness. But then David continues and he tells him why. I, want, I, surely, I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake. It has nothing to do with you, Mephibosheth. It has to do with the relationship I had with your father. We were blood brothers. I loved him like I loved myself, and you are his seed, and I want to bless you because of him. We need to, to get over this idea that God wants to bless us or, or discipline us because of us. We are a passive part of this deal. We are not getting in on God's blessing because God is so impressed with us. We're getting in on God's blessings because He's impressed with Jesus and we are in Him. It's not, it, it has very little to do. Now, I, I shouldn't have to say this, but I, I know I have to say it. That does not mean that you can go off and run, run off and live any way you want to live. We looked at it last week. You were bought with a price. Your life is not yours if you have been redeemed. If everything Jesus did, He did for you, then you owe Him your life. It's an exchange. It's the same way with, with, with marriage. You know, it, it's a pretty sick mind. And, and abuse, physical abuse, almost always goes from the male to the female. Not always. There are exceptions to that. But it's almost always from men physically abusing their wives. But it would be really stupid of me to go home and say, you know, Gina, I love you, but just to give you an opportunity so that you can prove how much you love me, I'm just going to beat the snot out of you. 
and then proceed to do it. I'm going to give you an opportunity to love me even when I don't deserve it. I know it'll hurt a little bit, but look at the glory you're going to get. Now you laugh because that's just the dumbest thing that, that's come down the pike for a while. And yet that is the thoughts that we have sometimes towards God. I heard an, uh, an illustration on the radio yesterday, and I'm going to take it a little farther. This guy was saying, you know, us trying to please God with our uh, good works is like a, a woman going in to uh, try on clothes, and her husband's sitting there patiently. <laughs> That's where the laugh goes. The husband is sitting there patiently, and, and the wife goes in and puts on a, you know, an outfit, and she comes out, and she's, she's dazzling. And she looks at her husband, and she says, Do you love me now that I'm wearing this dress? And then she goes back in and she changes dresses because he just kind of sits there impassively. And she keeps putting on different clothes and different outfits. Will you love me now with this on? If I don't love you with your dirty sweats on, I'm certainly not going to love you with the gown on. Love has nothing to do with what you wear. But at the same time, we look at it, most Christians, we, we understand it's not my righteous works that get me to God to love me. He loved me despite that. But we do look at God and we, Hebrews says you need to come boldly before the throne of grace to find mercy and grace to help in time of need. And I've always said if, if you can feel your pulse, you, you need there's not a time you don't need. So it's a, it's a command to constantly come before the throne of grace. But we come before the throne of grace, we only want to come in when we've gotten all dressed up and we're clean. And we got our best Sunday best on and we're, we're looking good, we smell good, a shave to put on the aftershave. And I can go in and God will say, man, I really love you. But when you've been naughty and you got manure on you you've been out in the barn you were sweaty you've been you know you fell down you tore your ripped your pants you ripped your skirt whatever we don't want to go before God you look at that in the, in I think it's in the book of Zechariah where the um, Joshua the high priest he comes before the throne and he's got filthy clothes on. It means that the priest, remember when the priests sacrificed the animal, the, you had the offal. You have the, the, the guts. And inside the guts, if you, you're doing herbivores, they have a lot of poo. I said it. A lot of manure in there. Well, you can't allow that to get on the sacrifice. It'll render it unclean. So they have, you have a priest whose job is to make sure that you get all of that out of the animal without contaminating the meat of the animal. In doing that, they're going to get a lot of stuff on them. And they are unclean. Even though they're doing God's work, they get unclean in the midst of it. Joshua the high priest comes before God's throne covered in manure. And Satan is right there. Remember, his, his, one of his main names is the accuser. 
And he said, look at him. Look at him. He's filthy. He's got manure all over him. And you you know, most of us, our opinion would be, God would say, a bolt of lightning come out of his finger and just fry him. That's what he deserved. Well, of course that's what he deserved. It's what all of us deserve. But instead, God looked at him and he said, bring a clean robe. Take that dirty robe off and put a clean robe. Take a, 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 that, that dirty turban off of his head and put a clean turban on him. God didn't, didn't rebuke uh, Joshua for being dirty. He cleaned him up at the throne. That's what the, the mercy and the grace of God does. When you come in, when you sin, running away is the worst thing you need to do. You need to run before the throne and say, Father, I don't know how I ended up in that pig pen again, but I was there and I'm here and I'm dirty. 1 John 1, 9. Run up there and get clean. David is here to show kindness to Mephibosheth, not because he's anything, but because of who his father was and the relationship they had. We get all of our blessings because of the relationship we have with our brother, Jesus. He cut the covenant with us. If you have accepted him, he gives it all to you. Not the father opens, reading in, in Malachi. And this is just talking about giving a little money. He said, if you will bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, I will open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing larger than you can contain. And I will rebuke the devourer on your behalf. And, I love it when God just keeps putting the hands in there. And I will make you to be a delightful land. Three promises that go just with giving money. The only, the only other time the Bible that I can find refers to opening the windows of heaven is when he opened the windows of heaven in Noah's day to flood the earth to judge sin. If we'll just obey him in the tithe, he'll, he says, I'll open the windows of heaven. The same one that inundated the earth with water to kill everybody that's in, I will open that same floodgate and pour blessings on you that you cannot contain. And I'll rebuke the devil for you, and I'll cause you to be able to enjoy everything you got. Pretty good promise. That's what he wants to do. The third thing he said... So David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan your father's sake, and will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. He said, I will, not only am I going to show you kindness, I'm going to restore everything that Saul had. It's yours. King has a lot of land. You know who the richest person in Great Britain is? Queen Elizabeth. She's a multi-billionaire. It's good to be the queen. At least when it comes to money. Not sure there's any other blessings there. But this is a lot of stuff. And not only that, he says, I'm going to restore all of this, but you're not going to need any of that. I want you to come sit at my table and eat my bread. That means I'm going to restore all of these things that just money's going to pour in. Just going to pour in. But you're not going to have to spend anything. Just come sit. Let me take care of you. 
Anything you need, call my servants. Put it on my tab. You know, I can remember the day when I, I, I had a very generous father. He had a lot of faults, and I told him about his faults many times. I was a teenager once. But I can remember, went out on the weekends, because I had the same rule. He had the same rule for me that I had with my kids when they were in school. When school's in session, you have a job. Get to, get to class, study your studies, keep your grades up. Other than that, you ain't working. Summertime, get your butt out in my field and you work and you work hard and you go over and you pick up hay if you want a little cash. You go lifeguard if you want some cash. I've got plenty of things for you to do. But when school's in session, you're not working. This is your job. Because of that, I had no cash. Because I'd earn money in the summer, but like most teenagers, it didn't make it to the fall. But when I wanted to go out, Dad'd reach in his wallet. He'd hand me a credit card. You need gas? Put gas in the car. Here's a credit card. It wasn't really a great thing to do because I just kind of got used to putting gas on the credit card and never realized that there was going to come a day when it was going to be my credit card and they want their money back. <clears throat> but that's what God does. He hands you the credit card and He said, Hey, if you'll live my life, here's a credit card. When you need something, charge it to me. It's never going to bounce. It's never going to hit. You're never going to put that credit card up and they're going to say, that was denied. He, he wants us to be blessed. Now, read on. Verse 8. Then he bowed himself, this is Mephibosheth, and said, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? Mephibosheth has a little bit of renewing his mind to get done. This is exactly where we are. This is why Paul said in Romans 12, we need to, to um, renew, your, your, your life needs to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We have to change the way we think. We need to get God's view of us. If you don't have God's view of you, then you've got the wrong view of you. But notice verse 9. And the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given to your master's son all that belonged to Saul and to all his house. You therefore and your sons and your servants shall work the land for him, and you shall bring in the harvest, that your master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's son, shall eat bread at my table always. So God said, look, Mephibosheth, you come eat at my table, but I'm going to put some servants in charge of your land, and they're going to work it for you. And everything that they earn goes into your bank account. You're not going to have to spend any of it, but you can earn some stuff. God is, you know, He's done the same for us in the, in the Gospels. Jesus said, don't, don't put your riches, have your riches involved here on earth where rust and, and, and things eat it up. He said, put your, your, your treasure in heaven where neither rust nor anything else can, can destroy it. We, and not only that, but He gives it to us. He gives us servants that will work for us. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of angels, says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister 
for those who will inherit salvation. Every angel in, in heaven is on call to obey your words when your words agree with God's words. That's why James could say, James Peter, I forget now, when a, it's James, when a, the, the prayers of a righteous man make much power available. Part of that power is when you get in agreement with God and you declare what God says about you, the angels come to attention. And they say, hey, we got some work to do. Let's get out there and make that come true. Well, why would they listen to us? They're not listening to you. When you speak God's word, they don't hear your voice. They hear God's voice. I've used the illustration before. My son's uh, uh, like three years, two, three years older than my daughter. He'd go to the playground and you could not pry that boy off the playground. He just he would go till it was dark and he was starving. He'd be so hungry he'd crawl back to home. But he's not going to stay. He's not coming home till he just absolutely has to. So when you when you need him, you don't. I'm not going to go get him. It's what I got this little rugrat for. Tiffany, go get your brother. When you go get him, tell him, Dad said, come home. Because if you go down there and you say, Brian, you need to come home, I know what the response will be. Well, who are you to tell me what to do? I don't have to listen to you. You're not the boss of me. But when you say, Dad said, come home, those words mean a little different. When we declare God's word, we're not declaring my word. I'm saying my Father in heaven said, this is the truth about my life, and this is what I'm going to get, and this is how it's going to be. And if my word agrees with His word, the angels will go and do whatever is needed to be done. You know what the greatest scandal in the church is? Most of our angels are sitting around playing cards because they got nothing to do. Because we're not claiming anything. Or we're claiming things that are totally opposite. And you got demons out there and evil spirits are saying, Hey, I can get an agreement with that. Yeah. You say you're tired, you betcha. Here, let me give you a little more tired. You say you're poor, well, let's go flatten a couple of tires. There's plenty of potholes out here. Well, you know, it don't matter what happens. Every time I get out on that road, if there's going to be one pothole in 50 miles, I'll find it. Yep. They may have to move it to a new lane to get you there, but if you declare it, they'll help you get there. Your words matter. Because you matter. Because you are... We saw it a couple of weeks ago. We, just as Jonathan was going to be David's second in command, we are Jesus' second in command. We are His hands. We are His feet. We have His name. We have His anointing. And we have His blessing to go forth and preach the Word. And He said, if you preach the Word, you'll have signs following well, brother, I'm not seeing very many signs. Maybe we're not preaching much word. Ouch. That one hurt. And then notice in, in 2 Samuel 9, down in verse 12, this is after Mephibosheth has, has lived there for a while. He has a son. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, which means who is like God. I believe that, that, that Mephibosheth, when he had a child, he said, what are we going to name this one? 
Well, man, God has just blessed my socks off through David. Let's just praise God with his name. Let's just name him who is like my God. That's a pretty good, pretty good confession. Amen? Now, don't think that, it's, that, that as long as he's, Mephibosheth is doing everything perfectly, that everything's working out. But if he, if he crosses David, David will come after him. Look over at Second uh, Samuel 16. This is after Absalom rebelled. Verse 1, we're going to start in verse 1. Second Samuel 16, 1 through 4 to begin with. Absalom revolted. David's fleeing for his life because all of Israel, they were, they were, David was messed up. For, for a man that was after God's own heart, David really did some messed up things. And this one cost him. And Absalom plotted and plotted and took over. And David's fleeing for his life. And as he's fleeing, it says, when David was a little past the top of the mountain, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, What do you mean to do with these? So Ziba said, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, And where is your master's son? Then Ziba said to the king, Notice David's still referring to Ziba's master as Saul, even though Saul's dead and gone. He said, Where... Hillbilly translation, where's Mephibosheth? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, Here all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. So Ziba shows up with all these supplies for David, and David says, where's Mephibosheth? And he said, well, he's still in Jerusalem because he thinks that Absalom's going to come and give him the kingdom. Now, later on, we're going to read down in, in, in chapter 19 that when David meets Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth says, Ziba lied. Personally, I think Ziba lied for one reason. Why would Mephibosheth think that Absalom's going to turn everything? I just had a revolution to make myself king, but I'm going to turn around and give it to you? No. Absalom only wanted one person to be king, and that was Absalom. But Ziba saw an opportunity. I can get all of Saul's possessions. And David, he doesn't know what's going on. He's just running for his life. So he told Ziba, have it. It's all yours. Then in, in chapter 19, we'll start in verse 24. Said now, This is when Absalom's dead. David's coming back to Jerusalem. He meets Mephibosheth. He said, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. This is a lot like mourning. Mephibosheth is in mourning because David's no longer king. Absalom's going to be king. 
Verse 25, So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king, yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I to still cry out any more to the king? Put that in the, the uh, make sense English. Mephibosheth says, look, this guy lied about me. But what do I care? You brought me out of obscurity. You set me at your table. You have blessed me. So you do what you want to do with me. I'm not going to complain. You choose my fate and I will accept it with no complaints because you have blessed me so much. Verse 29, So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather let him take it all, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth just looks at him and says, Look, Zeba wants all this stuff so much, just let Zeba have it all. I don't care about that. I'm living in your house. I'm living on your dime. I'm eating your food. What do I need all, this, all these possessions for? It reminds me in the New Testament of the man who, who, who planted crops and God blessed him and he had an abundance of, um, of harvest. And he looked at that harvest and instead of saying, hey, I got more than I could ever deal with. And I'm going to start blessing some people that need blessing. He said, no, I'm going to build some extra barns and I'm going to store it up for me. And God said, you're a fool. Tonight you're coming to see me. He didn't judge him. He didn't send him to hell. But he said, this is all temporary and you think you can, you're going to store it up and live the leisurely life? Today's the day you're going to die, you idiot. What good's it going to do you when you're in heaven with me? It did him no good. But had he taken that abundance and said, God, I got twice the yield that I should have gotten. I'm just going to sell it all and I'm going to give half of it away bless the poor, bless people, and keep what I normally would have had as my harvest. He may have, it may have been his time to go to heaven, but when he got there, everything that he'd given away would have been there waiting on him, plus some, multiplied. Amen? Now, whether David believed Mephibosheth or didn't believe Mephibosheth, David had the opportunity to think, in fact, he did for a while, Mephibosheth has betrayed me. You read through that whole account there. Um, there was a guy, he's a Hebrew name, and I, I'm horrible. Shimshi, I think, um, that cursed David. And one of David's mighty men said, hey, and they were riding out, Absalom, and this guy's celebrating. Hey, your son took over, you dirty dog, you man of blood. 
I'm glad to see you're down now. You were king, but you killed a lot of Saul's family to get there. First of all, that was a lie. But that's what the guy believed. So it really doesn't matter whether it's truth or not. If you believe it, it becomes your reality. And the guy's cursing David. And some of his mighty men, man, they got their hands on their swords. And it's like, just give me the word. I'll go and whack his head off. And David said, no, leave him alone. This has come on me because I screwed up. I haven't been a good king or Absalom would have never been able to take, care, take over for me. Maybe he's speaking what God wants me to hear right now. Leave him alone. And Mephibosheth from David's eyes doing the same thing. He's taking advantage of Absalom's rebellion. I'm going to get in good with Absalom. David's gone. When David comes back after Absalom's dead, he meets Shimshi. And Shimshi knows, oh man, I screwed up. And he meets him bowing down and asking for forgiveness. And David very easily could have said, now cut his head off. Instead, he raised him up and he said, all's forgiven. David knew that he was a man of sin. And I'm not going to judge anybody else harder than God judges me. So yes, you came against me, but it's okay. I forgive you. Go, be blessed. He's done the same thing with with, uh, Mephibosheth. The point being, if you go to Hosea, you don't have to go there. Let me just read it. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. One of the strangest, strangest prophets. And what God told him was even stranger. When the Lord began to speak by Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take yourself a wife of harlotry and children of harlotry. For the land has committed great harlotry by departing from the Lord. God looked at a prophet of God and said, Here, this is your task in life. Go marry a prostitute. That doesn't make much sense to me. I thought God wanted us to lead a righteous life, and yet He's telling His prophet, go marry a prostitute, knowing that she's going to stay married for a while, and then she's going to run back off and party for a while, and the prophet's going to go after her, bring her back, restore her, and then she's going to go off and run, party, whore around, and then he'll bring her back more than once. Why did God do that? Because that's what we do. We come to Him and say, God, I want a relationship with you. But hang on a minute. I want to go over here and play around for a while because I want some fun. Because I deserve this. You know, life's hard. I deserve to get angry and voice, you know, give people a piece of my mind. Problem is, you give too many of those pieces away, you don't have much left. Some of us don't start with much to begin with. Or, you know, I, I've worked hard, life's tough. I need... Um, some distractions. I know you said I should get in your word, and if I get in your word, you know, if, if those that wait on the Lord, I'll renew your strength. If I get in there and tie myself real close to you, you'll give me strength. That's hard work to tie myself up to you, to study the word, to have a devotional life, to pray. I just want to go veg out in front of the TV for, I don't know, just a month or six or a couple years, you know. I know you called me to pray, but my shows are on. Just the fact that we have our shows tells you there's a problem here. Because you have now identified with that show to the point where it's yours. Oh, God, how far the righteous have fallen. 
We want to complain about all these, you know, naysayers out here that are, that are, you know, lewd and crude. Judgment needs to start at the house of God. It needs to start with me. I need to find out what's going on in my life that's not pleasing to God. And if it's not exalting Him, then it's probably not pleasing to Him. Amen? I know that's a cheery note to end on. So let me, let me give you the, 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 the capstone. This covenant that God has made, we, are, we stand in the place of Mephibosheth. Adam fell, everything screwed up, we're crippled, we've got sin in our life. But God's come and rescued us. He said, look, I've, I, I, I had a second Adam come. And he lived a perfect life and he died a perfect death. And he conquered death, hell. He conquered the devil. He conquered everything and I've given him all authority. Everything belongs to him in the entire universe now. And he's your brother and all you have to do is accept his sacrifice and I'll make you just like him. And then we do that but then we mess up. And we expect lightning bolts. We expect judgment. But it's interesting and I'm just going to read these. And I'm just going to read the, um, the salient points. Deuteronomy 31.6. This is, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. This is speaking to Joshua. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31.8. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not fear nor be dismayed. Joshua 1.5, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. 1 Kings 8.57, May the Lord our God be with us as He was with our fathers. May He not leave us nor forsake us. 1 Chronicles 28.20 And David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, will be with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Now those are six Old Testament. New Testament, Hebrews 13.5 Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I will not leave you nor forsake you. We are so worried sometimes that God's, God's, God will walk away from me because of my actions. God didn't come to you because of your actions. He won't leave you because of your actions. He comes to you or leaves you because of your faith. Your faith in Jesus. Now, there are, there are rewards to be gained by conforming your life to Jesus' life and obeying God. And there are rewards to be lost. But when God looks at us, He does not look at us for us. He looks at us because of who we are in Christ. And we need to get over this high opinion of myself that I can cost me so much because I messed up. No, quit wallowing and letting the devil beat your brains in. Run to the throne room. Run to 1 John 1, 9 and say, Lord, I screwed up. I sinned. I messed up. I did it. I'm guilty. 
And He will look at you and say, No, you're not. My blood covered that. You're not guilty. Because you confessed it, I cleansed you of it. Now forget it and go on. Get back to work. Amen? We need to get over our and get, get a greater revelation of the nature of righteousness that's within us than the nature of unrighteousness that we do sometimes. I am not a sinner that got saved. I am a saint who sometimes messes up and sins. That doesn't, my sin doesn't change my nature. I used to be a pig, now I'm a sheep. I sometimes go wallow with the pigs and I get filthy, but I'm still a sheep. When I wallow with them, I smell. I got to carry a lot of extra load. If you've ever seen a, a sheep when their wool is full, imagine wallowing in a pigsty with that. I'm going to carry a lot of extra weight. That's why sin is so stupid. It's why it's amazing that we stay in it as long as we do, because it just puts more burdens on us. But God's not putting that burden on us. We can shed that burden anytime we want by running to the throne room. We have a covenant. And it's more valuable, it's more powerful than our sin. And we need to take advantage of it, not only because of the blessings, but the greatest blessing is when I sin, I don't have to stay in it. I just go, hey Lord, I'm here. It's the 9 millionth, 940 billionth time I've showed up here for the same action. I know you're tired of seeing me. And he said, who told you that? You're my child. You're always welcome. And I'll, I'll close with this last thought. If you're not a grandparent, this is a little harder to understand, but if you are a grandparent, it's very easy. When my grandkids run up to me, I don't care how they behave for mom and dad. They're my grandkids. And I'm going to love them. I'm going I'm to hug them. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to give them whatever I got in my pockets. They get it all. They ask me for the world, I'm going to start looking for a lasso and figure out a way I can drag it down for them. Why? Because they are my grandchildren. They are the children of my children whom I love. And I don't care as much about how they behaved, although I like it when they behave towards their parents. But I, that's not the reason I love them. I love them because they are mine. That's how God looks at us. He looks at us more as a grandfather than a father, although He is our father. I know that's not theologically sound, but I'm just using it as a metaphor. Amen? He loves you. He paid everything for you. Just accept it. And don't let the devil beat you out of it because you messed up. Amen? Thank you so much for joining us today. If this message has blessed you, we invite you to visit us in person at the corner of Highway 31 South and Southport Road, Indianapolis, Indiana, or visit us online at FCCIndianapolis.com.